Welcome to my podcast on How Not to Retire, a Psychological Approach to a Healthy and Wealthy Retirement. Episode 2, Can Money Buy Happiness or Does It Deepen Your Bondage? Greetings, I'm your host, Dr. Richard Himmer. In our last episode, we covered the history of retirement dating back thousands of years until our modern time. We begin our podcast by reminding you that retirement is a new phenomenon in the human psyche. In fact, it's only been around since the 1950s or less than 70 years. This concept has only then become a household word. What began as agents peddling insurance policies and stockbrokers taking buy-sell orders eventually evolved into the grand titles of financial advisors, financial planners, fiduciaries, and so forth. The twist in this financial tale is that these experts have been globetrotting solely in this currency of money, yet retirement, as this podcast matures, is a complete understanding and application with something far more than just money. Some professionals call themselves wealth managers or wealth advisors. Another title wordplay that doesn't change the reality that retirement, if properly understood, cannot have just one component such as money. Back in the 50s and 60s, very few people could retire without government assistance or perhaps a wealthy family member. They also viewed wealth and their relationships differently back then as well. So let me provide four definitions for clarity as we move forward. Starting with money. Money is an object. It's a servant, something to be controlled, a commodity to trade with. For example, we trade our time and services for money. In turn, we trade our money for items of needs and wants. Many people spend their time at work so they can spend more time with their family. Some people trade their time with family for time at work, usually because they're medicating at work and they're running away from family, relationships, pain. We'll cover this in later episodes. Okay, that's money. Wealth. Wealth is a process, not an event. It's a mindset of having enough, enough time, enough love, enough friends, enough family, enough exercise, food, conversation, learning, challenges, technical and social skills, understanding. It's having enough. Poor is not having enough. The antithesis to wealth. And finally, effective retirement is the ability to achieve sufficient wealth, which is having enough, to maintain or exceed the quality of life that existed before retirement. So if your retirement, if you're already there or you're planning that, is less than what you currently have and does not improve, that's an ineffective retirement. When visions of retirement dance through folks' noggins, it's often full of activities, hobbies, friends, family, learning, growing, traveling, while to others, Envisioning retirement is filled with relaxing, chilling, sleeping in, and just hanging out. To retire, then, by definition, is to leave one's job and cease to work, typically upon reaching the normal age for leaving employment. Today's standard is 65. 
I share with you, however, that is changing, and it's changing, in my opinion, for the better. The following story comes from a conversation I had with a financial advisor. In my work, I meet with financial advisors from all over the states. Using the aforementioned definition, retirement means to leave one's job and cease to work in that position. doesn't mean you don't move into other things in life, but you're no longer working that position to earn an income. So here's our story. As you listen to the dialogue, pay specific attention to the client's relationship with money. Keep in mind that money is designed to buy wealth, and having money is not the same as being wealthy. So our two characters are Ralph, the financial advisor, and Lenny, his client. So Lenny's a 75-year-old former first responder. A noticeable edge shadowed his countenance as he entered Ralph's office for his annual financial review, and he was accompanied by his wife. His angry disposition was due, according to Lenny, to a small portion of his retirement portfolio of roughly $10 million that was down about $10,000. Contextually, his overall portfolio for the year was up about $1.5 million. In other words, his loss of $10,000 equaled 0.1% of his total portfolio, and that was responsible for his feelings of angst. This is why the psychology of retirement is vital to maximizing what I refer to as the bonus half of life. I will cover that at the end of today's episode. So we have Lenny. He's worth more than $10 million. And were he to liquidate his entire portfolio and stick it into a guaranteed account making 1.5%, and that's not a lot, he could spend $150,000 a year until hell freezes over and never touch his principal. Our retired first responder was flexing his transactional leadership techniques with the intent to make a point. After Lenny's initial monologue of murmurs, here's how Ralph, who is well-versed in financial psychology and understands the definition of wealth, handled the situation. Ralph. Lenny, what's your net worth? Lenny. More than $10 million, depending on the day and month. Hear the edge? Ralph. When you die, will you have more or less than $10 million? Lenny. More. Ralph. And if your net worth increases to $10 million at the time of death, would your life change for the better in any way whatsoever? Lenny. No. Ralph. Then why in the world are you pretending to be miserable about an investment temporarily losing $10,000 due to an interest rate fluctuation when $2 million doesn't mean anything to you? Lenny's wife was smiling ear to ear. It was all she could do to refrain from laughing out loud. Perhaps it's one of the few times her husband's dysfunctional and misapplied behavior was illustrated. On a side note, Lenny's been in and out of the hospital for months with an infection from an accident. Most of his $10 million is in real estate, so his days are busy doing what? Taking care of rentals, maintenance, collecting, etc. To the point now, he was injuring himself and putting himself in the hospital. To further illustrate the absurdity of being controlled by money, Lenny could place his entire stockpile of cash into a vault 
and then summarily spend $41,666 a month, so that's $500,000 a year, until he's 95, which is 15 years past current life expectancy, and he'll never run out of money. From a psychological perspective, how is 10000 going to negatively impact his ability to experience wealth? Ralph, getting this very quickly, asked this question. By the way, Lenny, how did you injure yourself? Of course, referring to his multiple hospital visits. Lenny wasn't really in the mood to answer, so he changed the subject, muttering something about it's none of your business under his breath. Now, for a minute, you play financial psychologist. What's going on with Lenny? By definition, he's not retired. He's in the pre-retirement phase and potentially setting himself up for the disenchantment phase, which I'll cover in the next part of the podcast. Who's in charge of Lenny's happiness? Him or his rentals? What's going on with his wife and their relationship? How does she feel about her workaholic husband and his lack of awareness or inability to transition to a different phase in their life? This isn't just about Lenny's stubbornness and selfishness or lack of awareness. This has a strong impact on her quality of life, her physical and mental health, her immune system, her passions, and overall marital and personal happiness. You see, when you get super focused on the wrong things, wealth suffers. You might get a lot of money, but your wealth will not happen. So the question again, is Lenny maximizing his golden years? If the golden years are marked by hospital visits because one is stuck in the accumulation phase, how golden are they? It appears Lenny is trying to practice retirement doing the exact same things he did in his early years, and somewhat delusional to the fact that a 75-year-old body with assets greater than $10 million can afford the blue-collar wages necessary to address the upkeep of his business. This is the oft-repeated epitaph written on the headstone of people with Lenny's mentality. Here lies Lenny, the richest man in the graveyard. Now, according to researchers, there are five retirement stages that everyone will go through. Taking a preemptive approach means you actually don't have to experience steps three, four, and five. So let's go through them. Number one is the pre-retirement stage. This is the stage before you actually retire, and it involves imagining your new life, that's the first part, and planning for it. This is arguably the most important step and where the emphasis of this podcast is focused, and I'll argue it is the arguably least conducted. Now, there are seven critical transition steps in the retirement process. Only one of them deals with money, and I deal with this, I'll discuss this in our next episode. So number one is pre-retirement. Number two is full retirement. The calming yet exhilarating feeling of fully experiencing wealth. Remember, wealth is having enough, is having sufficient. It's defined as having enough time, friends, relationships, hobbies, sleep, <laughs> love, and yes, money. Statistically, this step either never happens or it's a temporary experience because of the next three steps. And this is our goal. It's our dream state. Yet because step one rarely happens the pre-retirement, step two, full retirement, remains rather elusive. Step three, disenchantment. 
feelings of unmet expectations, disillusionment, and disappointment. Disenchantment occurs because step one did not happen. There was insufficient planning and emotional intelligence, which is awareness, empathy, and social growth, combined with mutual trust and respect in your relationships, all of them. Specifically, however, the one with your spouse, and then your children, then your grandchildren, and then your friends, and then your community, and then your hobbies. That order is very important. Disenchantment leads to mental health challenges and social isolation, which contributes to the escalating aging process that we're experiencing with retirees. Dr. Gary Brecka on a Joe Rogan podcast said, aging is the aggressive avoidance of discomfort. Okay, my financial psychologists, what is Lenny avoiding? So recently in an annual checkup I had, my physician and I were chatting about this very topic and he indicated that for the most part, his patients, once they retire, experience a noticeable change in their physical and mental health immediately. I mean, within weeks and months, he can discern that they've retired. I shared briefly my research about what I'm sharing with you now and the importance of emotional intelligence and the psychological aspects of the transition into retirement. My appointment ended up going another 30 minutes as we compared notes back and forth on this topic. So then he takes out a pad of paper and he writes down his personal email and he says, I want a copy of that book when it's ready. The disenchantment process, however, is wholly unnecessary if step one is employed. Step four, reorientation. So resetting expectations, reviewing goals, and planning anew. Assuming this step occurs, it's critical to take the appropriate and sequential approach, which is the actual same approach each of us should be taking in step one. If you're already at this stage, it's important to understand that trying to increase your level of happiness and wealth by using the same approach or tools that got you here will only escalate the aging process and spiral your emotional well-being. So don't try harder. Try different. Reconciliation and stability. This is step five. Restoring a sense of purpose and direction in your life. So finding the stability in your day-to-day -day life is going to require a reboot of the system. So in effect, step five is after you've reoriented and started taking the proper steps in the beginning. This is kind of step two after the retake. If you have not retired, then let's get step one first on the initial stage so you never get to steps three, four, and five. If you've already retired, then this is a reboot time. Let's get you going because you're in the right place to do that. Using our earlier story about Lenny, what if the focus of his retirement were on wealth instead of on money? Remember, wealth is having enough or sufficient. Sufficient love and sufficient time healthy relationships and hobbies, how would that have changed his approach to perhaps the most anticipated experience in the second half of his life? First of all, would Lenny still be working? Is there not a better way to address his real estate situation than to be an eternal landlord, ever seeking the desired headstone epitaph of being richer than his comrades in their respective bone-filled caskets? In fact, there is a wonderful way to escape the landlord business and to take advantage of the tax code and then create a guaranteed income stream 
called the Delaware Statutory Trust, or DSD for short. Since I'm not a financial advisor and I'm mindful of not providing financial advice, if you want to learn more about the idea of landlord retirement, you can visit our website at edu.madronafinancial.com and click on the real estate section that Brian Evans, our founder of Madrona Financial, has provided. And then find the DST videos. There's a plethora of them. So that's edu.madronafinancial.com in the real estate section, and you have many choices regarding the DSTs. So back to our podcast. An important relationship when it comes to an effective retirement is the relationship with wealth. A subset of wealth is money, not the other way around. Remember, money can buy wealth if used properly. Accumulating money is only part of the process of experiencing wealth. Money can also be the catalyst for broken relationships, lack of maturity, falling short of being your best self, and ultimately, the primary cause for failing to experience retirement as a bonus half of life instead of an extension of the accumulation phase, such as Lenny. It should be noted that having millions of dollars in your retirement fund is not required to experience wealth or happiness. In fact, it sometimes has the reverse impact on one's experience during retirement because the relationship with wealth does not sufficiently mature, and money becomes the slave master, as in our earlier story. <laughs> this begs the question, can money actually buy happiness? This question's been around my entire life, yet it was never used as an open-ended thought provoker of dialogue, but rather more of a directive with a biblical overture. You remember the old adage that it's not money that is the root of all evil, but the love of money that is the root of all evil? With time, I'll explain how the love of money is more the worship of and the enslavement to money. Besides, you know, love is not the appropriate verb to accurately describe how money becomes a slave master when wealth is not understood. Take Lenny, for example. Using his behavior only, nothing else. You don't know anything more than that, just what you heard. What can you discern by his behavior about his relationship with money? Again, we're going to the financial psychologist part of your brain. Is he in control or is the money or the pursuit of the money? Perhaps you notice that it's not the money per se, but the hyper focus on the accumulation that drives his behavior. Neuroscientists have discovered that the pleasure centers of our brain are often hijacked by our anticipation of and sometimes the hyper focus on events or experiences. For someone who has worked their entire life to accumulate enough money to retire, they often get caught up in the game of accumulation. And with time and success, meaning they're able to make more money, they're sucked into this pattern of growth anticipation. And when that happens, they learn to anticipate their bank account growing, and the growth is the reward instead of wealth or what the money can buy or do. This is how addictions are created. Watch A Christmas Carol featuring Ebenezer Scrooge for a good example of this. So the question is, who was happier, Scrooge or Bob Cratchit? Who had more money and who had the healthy relationships? After Scrooge's fateful night with three visitors, it was Scrooge's money 
that purchased the happiness in relationships, or better said, made a significant contribution on the following morning. Tiny Tim was healed because Uncle Scrooge used his resources to buy the necessary medical treatment. So remember the scene where it's the morning, Scrooge calls down to the boy on the street, and he has him buy the giant goose on the corner market. So after he initiated the purchase and the payment to the boy, Scrooge was elated. He was filled with dopamine, the anticipatory drug. It's also called the feel-good or happy drug. Dopamine production is neutral. It's neither good nor bad, and it's not addictive. It's how the experience is understood, processed, and acted upon that matters. The, the other chemicals, the e-chemicals produced after the anticipation happens, is where the addiction is developed. The behaviors or habits that follow dictate whether one develops an addiction or what's called maladaptive behavior that starts small and repeats or a lifelong habit that can lead to happiness, joy, and well-being, a second half of life toolkit. That's the goal where we're going to. So let me give you another example. What is better or which is better, December 24th or December 25th? Most people claim that Christmas is their favorite time of year and favorite holiday. Presents are given and received. Families get together and consume their favorite poison called grocery store food. And a wonderful time is usually had by all. But getting right down to which day provides the greatest hit of dopamine and happy drugs, well, Christmas Eve wins by a large margin. Taking nothing away from Christmas, it can become anticlimactic. Why? Because the anticipation associated with receiving presents on Christmas Eve is when the dopamine is produced. Allow your mind to go back to your single-digit years, or maybe your early teenage years. How many cool presents did you receive during your dreams, versus how many of them did you actually receive? To many kids, despite how much Christmas is fun, it can also be anticlimactic. I received some pretty amazing gifts the night before Christmas that my parents could not afford or provide. I got good at the game, so Christmas was still a savored experience. But I'm telling you, some of the gifts I got on Christmas Eve were really great. So let's answer this question, can money buy happiness? Foundational work published in 2010 by Princeton University's Daniel Kahneman, or Kahneman, and Angus Deaton found that day-to-day -day happiness rose as annual income increased but above 75,000, it leveled off and happiness plateaued. That was the initial research. And even though that was published in 2010, that research has been around a long time. On the other hand, research from Wharton's Matthew Killingsworth shows that contrary to previous influential work, the ones done by Kahneman and Deaton, they found there's no dollar value plateau at which money's importance lessens. So one potential reason is that higher earners feel increased control over their life as they earn more. So what is the relationship between money and well-being? It's one of the most studied questions in my field, says Matthew Killingsworth, who's a senior fellow at Penn's Wharton School, and he studies human happiness. In his words, quote, I'm very curious about it. Other scientists are curious about it. Lay people are curious about it. It's something everyone is navigating all the time. Close quote. To reconcile the differences, the two that I mentioned earlier paired up in what is known as an adversarial collaboration. Love that term. 
adversarial collaboration. So joining forces with Penn's Integrates Knowledge, University Professor Barbara Mellers was the arbiter. In a new Proceedings of the National Academy of Science paper, the trio shows that, on average, larger incomes are associated with ever-increasing levels of happiness. Now, that is against everything that I was taught when I was younger. Now, zoom in, and the relationships and the relationship games become more complex, revealing that within that overall trend, an unhappy cohort in each income group shows a sharp rise in happiness up to 100000 annually and then plateaus. Their words, but a long way of saying that that $75,000 plateau and now the $100,000 plateau is still accurate, but the sample group needed to be addressed. There is a certain cohort of people out there who are miserable no matter what. And for whatever reason, the initial 20 to 30 years of research seem to be able to find those people to do the research. So quoting Killingsworth, in the simplest terms, this suggests that for most people, larger incomes are associated with greater happiness. The exception is people who are financially well off, but unhappy. So in his words, if you're rich and miserable, more money won't help. For everyone else, more money was associated with higher happiness to somewhat varying degrees. So Killingsworth argues that higher earners are happy partly because they have an increased sense of control. Again, quoting the research, When you have more money, you have more choices about how to live your life. You can likely see this in the recent pandemic. People living paycheck to paycheck who lose their jobs might need to take the first available job to stay afloat, even if it's one they dislike. People with a financial cushion can wait for one that's a better fit. Across decisions, big and small, having more money gives a person more choices and a greater sense of autonomy." Close quote. So in harmony with my research, they explain that it might be best not to define success in monetary terms. And I'm going to end their research section with this quote by Killingsworth. He says, quote, Although money might be good for happiness, I found that people who equated money with success were less happy than those who didn't. So, parenthetically, this is me speaking. Think of Lenny. I also found that people who earned more money worked longer hours and felt more pressed for time. Close quote. We're going to speak to that in future episodes in much more detail. So, in summary, we began the podcast by defining four words. One, money. It's an object. It's a servant. It's something to be controlled. It's a commodity to trade with. Two, wealth. Wealth's a process. It's a state of being. It's a mindset. It's not an event. Wealth is having enough, enough time, enough love, enough friends, etc. Poor, not having enough. And four, the last one, effective retirement. The ability to achieve sufficient wealth to maintain or exceed the quality of life that existed before retirement. I end this podcast with a quote from Richard Rohr, which we will again discuss later. Life is divided into two parts, first half and second half. You cannot walk the second half of life's journey with the tools of the first half. You need a new toolkit. For the past 70 years, we have treated retirement with the erroneous mindset that it's all about money. So instead of retiring and experiencing the fruits of our labor, 
we continue to accumulate and work without the awareness that we are trying harder with the tools of our first half of life. I invite you to pick up the tools of the second half of life, which for most people is their retirement years. Hence, it's a bonus half of life. When you introduce emotional intelligence and psychology, sprinkle some research on it, you have a completely different approach. Remember, don't try harder, try different. Until next time, may your habits harmonize with your purpose, leading to a life filled with happiness, joy, and well-being.